Mark chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the man the, the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The word forgiveness is a Greek word. Aphiemi is the word. And what it means literally is to be set free. And this passage is about forgiveness, most specifically the forgiveness of Jesus. Jesus is revealing that the world is, as healthy as it might look, decayed and corrupt and falling to pieces. Even in the heart of Israel, this is true. Jesus reveals this. But he is bringing something that is meant to change everything. And it is forgiveness. The capacity to set free. That's the heart of what we want to talk about today. And so the title of the sermon is The Forgiveness of Jesus. Now there are three aspects of Jesus' forgiveness that we have to sort of build a case for. Now I don't want to take these independently. We're going to talk about three things. But they're not three separate things that can be isolated from one another. These are three angles from which we need to look at the idea of forgiveness if we're to understand what Jesus is doing for us. So three angles. And I have to begin not at the beginning of Mark 2, but in the middle to get at what needs to be the foundational observation that we need to make about forgiveness. And so, if you look back with me at Mark chapter 2, I want you to look at verse 5. The text tells us, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What is Jesus saying? We translate it, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that sounds like, right, Jesus is right then pronouncing forgiveness. But the difficulty is that the Greek word there is a tense that means an ongoing activity in the present. And I'm persuaded that the better way to translate this is this. Son, your sins are being forgiven. What Jesus is doing is saving 
these people from their sins. Not what He will do on the cross. That's part of it. But it's not the whole of it. His birth, His ministry, His life, His teachings, His sufferings, His celebrations, eventually His death, and His resurrection. This whole process is dealing with human sin in a final and ultimate way. And so there's a sense in this passage as it develops in Mark that what Jesus is saying to this man is, don't worry. Right now, your sins are being dealt with. What I'm doing is forgiving you. And it bothers people. It bothers the Pharisees in Jesus' day because Jesus does something that the Pharisees don't much like. And we have to get the Pharisees straight in our mind because the Pharisees are not the enemies. They're not the bad guys. These are the good guys in Judaism. The Pharisees were a movement of people within Israel. They said, people, we have to get real serious about the law again. We need to stop making compromises. We need to go back to Sinai and start living by what it says. And it needs to permeate everything that we do. And that was the Pharisee movement, a return to Sinai. And so these people became serious about no longer entertaining any rationalizations for disobedience anymore. So the Pharisees are not the bad guys. But they required for someone to be forgiven. What the law required. You have to repent. You have to turn away from your evil behavior. You have to come back to the law of Sinai and confess that you're going to follow it. You have to go to the temple and make a sacrifice. Do you understand why they're angry with Jesus? He requires none of that. Jesus just looks at the man and says, Son, your sins are being forgiven. By what authority can he do that? That's not the way sins are dealt with in the law. This is what drives them crazy. Jesus, apart from repentance, apart from a commitment to Sinai, apart from sacrifice, pronounces to this man that what Jesus is doing is forgiving his sins. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 13. If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. And therefore, all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus, sin was settled once and for all, for all people, irrespective of their faith. All are forgiven by what Jesus does. All are reconciled by the flesh of Christ on the cross. That's the teaching of Paul 
And he would argue that that's the implication of Jesus' capacity to forgive this man apart from repentance in this passage. <coughs> but, do you notice in Paul's teaching and in Jesus, not all will be saved. There is a hell. There is condemnation. A decision, a dividing line will be made at the end of time. So how do you bring all this together? This is what Dr. Noble suggested and what I offer to you. He suggested that in the wake of what Jesus did, those who will be condemned, are not condemned because they failed to accept what Christ did for them. They're condemned because they have rejected what has been done for them. Those who will find themselves eternally separated from God in the final condemnation were forgiven. Forgiveness is not something that happens when you bow and knee and ask Jesus into your heart. Reconciliation with God is not something that's accomplished when you finally consent to follow Jesus. Reconciliation and forgiveness is something accomplished once and for all by the ministry of Jesus. It was done when He finished it by being raised from the dead. And so from here on out, Dr. Noble suggested, and I think Paul actually argues, and I think Mark implies, is that forgiveness is not conditioned on our repentance. It's not conditioned on our obedience. Forgiveness is offered while we were still sinners. It's finished. But that does not mean that we will all be saved. To be saved, we have to not reject what He has done for us. So Jesus says to this man, your sins right now are being forgiven. Whatever has got you into this situation, and we have to be clear about this, don't we, church? I mean, in the ancient world, they believed that there was a correlation between a person's physical health and their spiritual fitness. And so there's an assumption in this story that this man is paralyzed because there's a sin issue. We need to probably reassert our understanding that our physical Bodies do manifest, in some ways, the kinds of lives that we live. And that includes sinful lives. There is a spiritual effect that is had on you by doing acts of evil. We know this, right? And so Jesus will resist that that's true of everyone who's sick. And that's what I always emphasize, because we can't over-universalize this observation. But there are people who seem to have this issue, that their physical bodies have been affected by their sinful proclivities. And so Jesus, my first point, is that forgiveness depends on what Jesus has done, not on what we are doing. The second point, though, is this. Forgiveness discerns faithfulness. So whatever this guy did, whatever he was doing, his four friends seemed to believe that he needs to be physically healed. And somehow Jesus gets in his mind, he, he discerns that these guys want the physical healing, and they understand that if this man is physically healed, that it will be somehow a healing of the underlying sinfulness that led to his condition. At least that seems to be their perception. And Jesus, rather than healing him, pronounces his forgiveness. The only reason Jesus eventually heals him of the paralysis is because he needs to prove he can forgive the sin. So it's an evidence that he could forgive. But I find it interesting that he didn't initially 
heal the man of his paralysis. And what that leads me to say is this. So first I'm saying that forgiveness depends on the finished work of Jesus, not on anything we do. The second is this. The forgiveness of Jesus will handle our issue of sin, but will not always remove the consequences of it. But let me say with this man, I'm assuming that there is sin that has something to do with his situation because of where Jesus goes with the forgiveness. And so this man, Jesus pronounces forgiven based on what he is presently doing in his life. And then this man is just sitting there forgiven, but still on his mat. And Jesus is sidelined. He's sidetracked because the people say to him, the Pharisees in their hearts, but they're speaking to Jesus, you can't do this. Who has the authority to do this? Only God. And Jesus, rather than dealing with that issue, says, well, let me prove I have the authority. Get up and walk. And the man does. The consequences of his sin are taken away. So forgiveness is rooted in what Jesus has done, not in what we do. And forgiveness discerns faith. And even when Jesus forgives, we'll not always see the consequences of our sinful behavior removed. And finally, forgiveness devalues fear. And this gets into the second part of our story, and then I'll bring it all together. In the world of the Pharisees and in the world of the Law of Moses, uncleanness and wickedness have much more power than godliness does. The godly need to be much more fearful of the ungodly than the ungodly do of us. Sin is patterned in the First Testament as a disease of sorts. Sickness is what's catching. Health isn't catching. Right? Sickness is catching. That's the law of Moses. Uncleanness, unholiness, sickness, evil, wickedness. That's the most powerful thing in the world. It's catching. It spreads like wildfire. That's the whole world of the law. That's the world into which God spoke on Mount Sinai. And so when you speak that word at Mount Sinai, you're going to create a culture of fear. And that's the culture of Israel. They're terrified of the Gentiles, of the wicked. They're terrified of those who are unclean, who have diseases, of course, because they don't want to catch these things. The law was, in Paul's word, a guardian to keep us safe. This is in Galatians. Until the coming of Jesus. But Jesus does something that transforms that fear. It devalues it because Jesus' health is catching. He touches, right, last week, the leprous man, and it's not Jesus who gets leprosy, it's the leprous man who gets healed, right? Jesus can walk. He touches the paralytic. He doesn't get paralyzed. The paralyzed man walks. And in this story of the tax collectors and sinners, this is all coming together. Because the tax collectors and the sinners, the thought was that they could corrupt you. That just eating at the same table with them would mean that you agreed with their behavior, that you had accepted it, and that acceptance would begin to pollute you. You shun them, right? Because they're evil, you don't want to tolerate it. A little yeast, this is Paul, 1 Corinthians, will leaven the whole dough. But you see, Jesus, that's true, and there's we know that. We live in this world. Sin spreads. So does disease. But Jesus is creating an entirely different ethic. There's an inoculation, an inoculation to evil becoming part of who we are. Forgiveness. When someone sins against you, it's like someone with a hacking cold, nearly on their deathbed, coughing all over you. <laughs> 
And you look at yourself and you go, there's no getting out of this. Right? I'm going to get infected. Right? And if you don't forgive what they do, you will get sick like them. They will have passed on their evil to you. That's how sin spreads. It's how it's always spread. Someone does evil to you, you embrace that evil, it becomes part of you, you pass it on even when you don't mean to. And all of us are typhoid Marys of wickedness. All of us, passing on the evil, passing on the sin. Jesus insists that what he's doing will forgive the sin issue and somehow will stop its transmission. But only if we do as he did. And so he invites his disciples to sit at a table that should have polluted them, believing that the forgiveness Jesus was offering to these folks would inoculate them from the passing of evil to them. At least that seems to be the impression of Jesus' ministry. And so the Pharisees, they don't get that. That makes no sense to them, as maybe it doesn't make any sense to anybody here. They live long enough in this world to know that evil is much more catching than goodness, to know that sickness is much more catching than health. And so what Jesus is doing not only makes no sense, it puts his disciples at risk and in peril. And for the Pharisees, he is a poor teacher and a poor leader if he puts his people in a situation in which they are likely to be polluted. And so they don't just question Jesus. They question why he would invite his disciples to do this. This man is reckless. This man has no wisdom if he thinks that this is a safe place for him to be. And yet Jesus is there. These are the three points. Let me bring them together in closing. First, whatever it means to be forgiven is not dependent on our behavior. So that depends on Jesus. And the forgiveness of Jesus needs to be not rejected. I want to use that language, and that's complicated, but you can reject it. You can refuse to believe, first of all, that you need it. You can refuse to to sup with Jesus when he invites you to dinner. You can refuse to gather together in community the way Jesus has asked. You can do all kinds of things to reject him. And if you reject him, the forgiveness is not in the end going to matter, even though you were forgiven, for goodness sakes. You know? It does take faith, and we see that with these four friends, because Jesus sees their faith, and then he pronounces the forgiveness. So we do have a sense that they do have to come to Jesus, that that is a sign of not rejecting him, coming to him, looking to him to heal and deal with this issue. We have to do that. Faith, may uh, forgiveness may depend on what Jesus has done, but it also discerns faithfulness. And it's Jesus who will decide whether we've rejected or not. And in the end, once we've received that, the fear should begin to lessen in us. The fear of being corrupted, the fear of touching the sick and the hurting, the fear that would keep us insulated and protected, building the walls around our church and our lives to keep the world out. That fear should be diminished. In the teachings of Jesus, it's the gates of hell that will not stand against us. But as is true today, sin looks like it is taking over everything. It looks as though the world is falling apart. But the truth is that this is sin and the powers of darkness running in fear. We need not fear these powers. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. 
If we will live faithful in following Jesus, if we will offer the forgiveness he offered to us to those who do us harm, if we find ways to respond in grace when the world responds with hostility and hate, if we can find through the power of the Holy Spirit the capacity to do that, nothing will stand against the kingdom of God. So the question for us today, and here is the challenge. These guys desperately came to Jesus and through Jesus found out that forgiveness and hope and life could be found in his presence. So some of you may today need to come to Jesus. You need to come to him. That's the first step. But you need to recognize that you're already forgiven before you take those steps. All you're doing is refusing to reject what he's already accomplished on your behalf. And finally, when you come, the Holy Spirit of God can so fill us that it's the world and sin and evil that need fear the good in us much more than we ever need fear the evil in the world. Forgiveness is the inoculation. This is the challenge I think that's placed before us. The forgiveness of Jesus depends on what Jesus has done, not on what we do. The forgiveness of Jesus will discern faith. And we have to, in Jesus' estimation, not be rejecting what he's done. And in the end, once we receive it, fear should be driven out to know that the power that has now taken hold of us will one day transform the world and there is nothing that can stop it. That is a confidence out of which we can be gracious and loving and kind because it drives out fear.